Jackie, whenever you're ready. And so welcome to the show, Aaron Ahuvia. Aaron, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jackie. It's really a pleasure. Well, it's delightful. Um, Michael and I, you know, in, in reading up on your bio and, and the little chat we got to do uh, beforehand in the green room, we're super excited. Uh, you know, we wrote a book and I would not think of us as writers at this point. Um, and so when we get to talk to real writers and teachers of our craft, I think it's always fun. So let's talk a little bit about the teaching that you are doing up in Michigan. Sure. So um, I teach uh, mostly in the undergraduate and graduate business programs, mm -hmm. although I also teach uh, human-centered design uh, courses. And I teach a, a course called Understanding Customers, which as I get it is very similar to one of the main things you do in your business, which is trying to get a deep understanding of the customer and build marketing strategy uh, starting with the customer and the understanding. And, and that's also for the, the work I've done on why people love certain brands, brand love, that also follows that same model. It all starts with an understanding of the customer and sort of works backward from there. I also teach a course called Innovation, Creativity, and Entrepreneurship, which is very fun. Um, and in addition to teaching like creative ideation, it also talks about fashion and why fashions change and things going out of style. That's a, that's a lot of fun too. That's a blast. Um, so going back to the understanding the target audience, because that is near and dear to our heart. It's, in our opinion, the first step of either uh, success or failure in mm -hmm. any marketing, advertising and branding. What do you think are the best techniques right now to get inside the hearts and minds of a target audience? Oh, that's that's a great question. So the way I usually do it is I, I tend to use depth interviews. I'm also a very big fan of ethnography. And I sometimes will use ethnography, um, but my just experience is more on the depth interview side. Mm -hmm. So what I do with these depth interviews is I always start off with very straightforward questions. Uh, so I ask people, you know, what products do you use? How often? Why do you use them? Um, people are usually reasonably good at telling you descriptive things, like how often they use something or what products they have on their shelf at that moment. They are terrible at telling you why, what their motivations are. Um, and it's because as human beings, we don't have access totally to our own motivations. We genuinely don't know. I, I heard one very interesting example about hypnotism, where if you give someone a post-hypnotic suggestion, so you, you hypnotize them and you tell them, when you come out of hypno hypnosis, I'm going to clap. And when I clap, you're going to bark like, a, you know, you're going to get down on your knees and crawl around like a dog, right? So um, they do this and the person is hypnotized and it comes out and they clap. And what I would have expected is the person just would drop down on their knees, right? And right. Start, no, what the person does is the person says, oh, that's something really interesting on the carpet. Or, oh, I think I dropped something. And so the person comes up with a reason so that when they go down on their hands and knees and start crawling around, it makes perfect sense. It's perfectly rational behavior. They've come up with this reason for why they're doing it. But you know that that's not why they're doing it. Right. They're doing it because they've been hypnotized. They've been told to do it. So right. people, people are really good at like coming up with a little explanation. And you have to give them a chance to tell you that explanation. And that explanation is 
not useless. It's important information. And it's, you know, it definitely can give you some leads, but it's not the end of the story. So then once you've got there, like, this is my rational explanation for why I'm doing this. Uh, I go in, I use a lot of projectives. Um, I'll use for sort of the brand planet stuff. You know, if, if there was a brand, say the Clorox bleach, Clorox bleach was a whole planet, an alien planet. It was uh, inhabited by beings. You know, what would that planet be like? And what kind of aliens would live there? And why would you go there? And so sort of talk to them about this. Um, or we can do stuff where they make collages from visual images. Um, there's a lot of different approaches that activate the more creative and unconscious parts uh, of, their, of their thinking. And then what often happens is at the end of those interviews, people will tell me, my God, I, I never understood why I did that. I, I thought I was doing this for this reason. But now that I've talked to you, it's obvious to me that no, I'm doing it for this other reason. So they, it, it's really rewarding when that kind of thing comes up. Right. That's awesome. So when I'm talking to potential clients or, um, you know, I work with some local incubator startups and that kind of thing. And I always say that we make decisions for emotional reasons, but we justify them with logical ones. So if I say, oh, but it was on sale, then it's OK that I bought it. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, that's so well put. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to use that. It's all yours. We make decisions for emotional reasons and we just and, and that's what. That's kind of what emotions are for, though. Um, if you think about the word emotion, where it comes from, the root is motion, motion. So it's emotions are things that put us into action. They take us from standing still and they transform us into action. And so any purchase is an action. It's you're doing something. And if you do not have emotion, to get you into motion, you will not have motion, right? And so every, every purchase is motivated by emotion. It is guided often by reason, right? And so reason and emotion are not enemies and they're not unrelated. They're sort of partners that do certain things. Reason can help point you in a certain direction and emotion moves you in that direction. Well, I think a lot of people, we talk about emotional connections here a lot. And uh, the first time we bring it up, usually people get kind of weird about it because they don't understand it. They think emotion is either happy or sad. Uh, well, it's got to be dramatic. It's got to be, no, emotion doesn't have to be dramatic. It, it is an emotion is how we feel, right? And I mean, when we, when, we're, when, we're, when we have loyalty to a brand and we really kind of buy into it, that is an emotion. That is a gut reaction, right? That is how we feel about something. And that's yeah. what makes us loyal to it and, and own it, you know? Yeah. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest as something to think about a different way of thinking about this because very often people talk about rational versus emotional reasons, um, and what I'm gonna suggest is a, is a three part way of thinking about this. That uh, the rational we're gonna call those practical utilitarian kinds of reasons because that's usually what we're talking about some sort of instrumental benefit the umbrella keeps me dry the car takes me from point a to point b that sort of practical stuff and then what we call emotion we're going to break that into two different parts so one part we'll call hedonic that's a pleasure or pain the chocolate cake tastes good this you know this shoe fits poorly it's painful on my foot so you've got all kinds of pleasures and pains that are in there 
And then the third part that we call, now we call emotions, we're gonna instead we'll call that symbolic. And so these are, these are the symbolic ways that things usually, it's what does it say about me as a person that I'm using this product? What kind of a person do I wanna be? And so a lot of times when I divide up people's motivations, I'll say, you know, people want benefits from these products. That's certainly true. And the benefits fall into these sort of practical things. They fall into pleasures and they fall into identity and symbolism around identity. And that tends to capture a lot of it. Um, it's just a slightly different angle on the rational, emotional kind of thing. You know, I, I attended an amazing seminar and, and kind of a, mm -hmm. a lecture series workshop Gosh, it's been 25 years at this point. Um, Sanders Consulting at the time, I don't even know if they're still around, but I think it was Charles Sanders who was doing it. And so he said that we should, when we look at people, we break them down to the personality profiles, mm -hmm. we look at them by the structure of an ad. So if you took the disc profile or Enneagram or the color chart or all those kinds of different metrics and measurements, mm -hmm. um, but we use advertising. And so we can call them headlines, because right. they just skim the headlines. They don't read the details. We can call them illustrations because they only want to be surrounded by the best. So if you're the best, then you are worthy of purchase by them. Uh, we can look at body copy because they need to read all the words. A little bit of analysis paralysis. Mm -hmm. And then logo. So you think about the four elements of a print ad. These are kind yeah. of four parts. And so the logos are about the we. that They need some buy-in from others. Uh, from their kind of advisory council before they're willing to commit. And so if you break it down that way and you start to think about how to structure ads, what I see over and over again in the way people communicate is they write for themselves. So yes. I write in headlines. That's all I ever think about is bullet point list, uh, broad strokes. I, I avoid writing paragraphs all day mm -hmm. long. Uh, some of my coworkers, there are never enough words for them. Right. Ever, Aaron, never enough words. <laughs> the words go on and on and on. Oh my God, there's so many words. And so obviously I have trouble reading their stuff and they have trouble reading my stuff. And it's this ultimate reminder that we can't write for ourselves. We have to write for our target audience. Yes. And it has four different components. Yeah, two, 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 two immediate thoughts on that. Number one, I love that idea of you know breaking people down in that way. Um, and you already admitted that you're a headline. So oh, yes. I, I'm a body copy person. I, I want to read all those details. And I do get into analysis paralysis. That is definitely a problem that I have in, in certain situations. So I found that very, very fitting. Um, Mike, where would you put yourself? I'm a little bit of both. I mean, I, I, I love a good headline because um, I do a lot of the writing here. Uh, but there's nothing more painful than going into a meeting that I've spent three weeks writing something for Jackie and she just skims through it and ignores every single word that I put down that I crafted. I didn't just write it blindly. I like literally painstakingly wrote every single sentence and made sure it flowed and had the right rhythm and lyric quality to it. And it was for me a work of art and she just skips it <laughs> and yeah. summarizes. So, so I'm, I, I can feel the pain on that side too. That's, that's, you know, it reminds me, it reminds me of this old story. Uh, many years uh, ago, um, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. It'll come to me uh, at some point, hopefully. But there was, well before Donald Trump, there was the first big sort of businessman celebrity 
and this was in the 1920s, and he owned a big fancy department store in New York, and there were lots of uh, stories about him um, and sort of his business wisdom. And this is a story that I tell my class, and it, it sort of com combines both, Jackie, so two of the points you were making, but in, in a different way. Um, in this one, the, the, the ad writer actually comes out ahead. Um, and so the ad writer has written something with a lot of words, as Mike might. And um, uh, I'm forgetting his first name. His last name is Hart, I believe. The, 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 owner, the business owner says, this is too much, uh, too much text. And the ad guy says, no, I, I bet you that I could write something that would be an entire newspaper sheet full of text. And the, 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 the consumer would read every single word in that thing and in that text. And the, the guys, the, the owner is like, no, that's crazy. It wouldn't. Um, what would you write? And then he says, well, it's easy. I'd write the headline would be this page. That's his name. The owner's name was Max Hart. So the headline is this page is all about Max Hart. So if you saw a newspaper page and it said this page is all about, and then it actually had your name and you started reading that, you would read every word on that page. And we can't, I mean, we don't, I mean, yes, with today's technology, we actually could insert everyone's name there, but that's not really what we're trying to do most of the time. But we want to create that effect. You want, when the reader reads that page, you want them to feel like this was written just for me. And if they feel like it's about them, they will read more copy, not, not that much copy, but more copy than they would, you know, if, if they don't get that kind of feeling. But as I know you guys agree, there's only one way that a consumer is going to look at an advertisement and feel like this page is all about and with their name on it. And that's if you've deeply understood that consumer and you've written that ad for them because you know them and you can create that response in them. If all you know about that consumer is that they're 30 to 45 years old and uh, drink light beer and drive a certain type of car, you're not going to have the kind of consumer insight you need to write an ad that when they read it, they go, oh, that, yeah, that's so true. Right? Because that's the response you really are, you're going for. And I think people want to skip steps now, more, and especially with the agencies, I see a lot of work that's been done. They want to skip over that and just jump right to the conclusion, you know? And you're right. If you don't know who it is, really who it is that you're talking to, then you're just guessing at that point. And, and there's a lot of money on the line when you guess at things like that. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you another, another anecdote, a true anecdote, which I found just fascinating. So um, my work, my research is on brand love. And uh, the way I've done this work, I was actually fortunate enough to be, I was the first person to ever do a major scientific study on brand love. That was about 30 years ago. And I've been working on it in various ways uh, ever since. Um, and when I do this work, as I mentioned, the first thing I do when I started is I just sat down with a lot of people. Now it's been hundreds um, and said, tell me about something you love. I didn't even say tell me about a brand or a product just a thing. You know, if it is a brand or a product, they'll bring it up, right? But you want to push them. So just anything could be anything. And so people told me about all sorts of things. And we talked, often the conversations would go on for hours, 
people love to talk about the things that they love. You know, it's like asking a grandmother about her kids, grandchildren. She'll talk as long as you let her, right? So absolutely. So we, we, we had the long conversations. And then once I, I've done this with, you know, 70 at that, the earliest study, 70 people and many since then, then start going through them and figure out, well, what are people really talking about? What are they really saying? You know, not just the superficial words. You get down, you know, what, what's the emotion behind this? What's the idea behind this? And, and built a model that is, you know, when people talk about love, this is really what they mean. Well, you compare that to what um, the overwhelming majority of consultants and polling companies do when they talk about brand love is they sit down in a meeting room with a couple people from the company and they talk about what they think love is and what it should be. And then they come up with something. And what they come up with is always very plausible sounding. I've read these things and they always, they see, I read them. I think, you know, that kind of makes sense. I, I could see how that might be it, but they usually just don't work because they're not grounded, you know, from the consumer out. So there was a, a company, I'm not going to mention them by name because they're a big giant, huge polling company and, um, I don't want to embarrass them. And I, more than that, I don't want them yelling at me in public. So I'll, I'll leave their name off of this. But uh, they came out with a study a while ago of the 50 most loved brands in the United States. And at right the same time, um, I did a, a study where I asked 600 people, tell me three brands that you love. Um, and just I just compiled the list. And from my study, there was some very interesting findings. And one of the things that I found was that there were a few brands, Apple at the top, then Nike, then Samsung, and some others that a lot of people loved. Um, then there was this enormous list of 700 different brands that either Usually, almost all of them, one person loved. In a few cases, two, maybe three people loved. But for almost all of the 700, one person loved that individual little brand there. And what that told me is that if you're listening to this and you, you've got some company or a brand that you're working with, there's probably somebody out there who loves it. Because right? they, seem, they seem to love just about anything. But it's also true that there's a very few companies that have really mastered this. Companies, you know, like Amazon, Amazon is actually also on that list, but like Apple, I was going to say, or Nike or Samsung, that are really working with this and mastering this and are making, you know, just gobs and gobs of money um, off of this. And most companies aren't. But if you go back to the, 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 where I started with this, with this other company, the, the, the polling company that just sort of made up its own definition. And then they published this list of the 50 uh, best known, uh, most loved brand in America. So where do you think Apple was on their list of 50, the 50 most loved brand in America? Number it one. Wasn't, it wasn't on the list. It didn't no even, way. It didn't even show up on their list of the top 50 because That's their definition right. was so far off. In fact, most of the items, more than half, of the brands that they call the most loved brands in America, when I asked 600 people to name three brands that they loved, not one person out of those 600 brands, 600 people, listed these any of these brands 
So you'd think that if it's really the most loved brand in America, somebody would mention it because on that list were all these bizarre, obscure brands that nobody had ever heard of. Um, and, and you get this fairly commonly in the consulting world around brand love because you know business owners, they get the intuition that this is important, but consultants, you know, are, they, they feel like their own personal idea about what love is, their philosophy, is, is where to start, but it's not. You, you need to start with the consumer. Right. I think absolutely. Too, and is, is it hard to, you find when you're talking about this with your students even in a different world? I mean, we have, um, we have college-age kids right now, for example, and so we're in tune with the way they think and everybody is immediate and it's quick information and it's now, 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 you know? Versus sometimes branding is a more of a long play. You know, you got to mm -hmm. really dig deep and you got to invest in it. You got to spend time with it. And it's not just always something viral that just hits. Because even what is that? I mean, it, it may be of the moment, but is it long lasting? You know, and how do you talk about that with your, your students and, and companies in that regard? I think there are fundamentally at least two. I'm sure there are others, but there are at least two different and very fundamentally different strategies that can both work. So one is an extremely common, it's a low involvement strategy. And you see this a lot in fast moving consumer goods, um, you know, grocery store items. Uh, and the idea here is that you need to make your product very convenient. So distribution is key, it's gotta be everywhere. And then it has to be really well known. So people, when they see it on the shelf, they trust it because it seems familiar and they've heard about it and they know what it is. And then it has to have some sort of moderate level of positive affect. When people look at it, they, they have a good feeling. They, there's some emotion there. It's not very particular, but they, there's some nice sort of warm, nice feeling goes along with it. And then in some cases, you, you give them a coupon or you put it on sale or you get it on the end of aisle display. Or in other cases, if it's a little bit higher end, you might not use the price incentive. You might use some other type of incentive. But you give people an incentive to buy at that moment and then people buy it. And you can sell a lot of tuna fish that way. Um, and, and people do, and that it, it can work very well. Um, however, the other strategy is a high involvement strategy. And this is, you know, we want people to actually care about our brand. We want people when they see an advertisement for our brand to look and be like, oh, this is interesting and to want to read that advertisement because they care about what's, what's going on. And if they go to a store and it doesn't have our brand, we want them to go to a different store. Right? And we want them to be willing to pay a price premium. Apple is obviously the, just the king of this type of approach. Uh, there was a study in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago that found that Apple had 95% of all the profits worldwide in the smartphone market. So for the entire globe, Apple was making 95% of all profits off the smartphones. Obviously, they don't sell anywhere close to 95% of all smartphones, especially if you get outside of the United States where people, you know, to places where people have lower income, um, Apple doesn't sell nearly as well as they do in the United States. But they're getting 95% of the profits. And the reason is they're able to charge a significantly higher price and have a, a good margin of profit, whereas the other brands 
are all in price competition with each other and are working on very thin margins and can't make you know much money out of that. Well, why is it that Apple is able to charge a premium, but these other companies, if they raise their prices, people would just leave and go to a different brand? It's because people love Apple. So love is, it's not something that I invented. I wish I could tell you that I came up with love, right? But um, I didn't, needless to say, it's an actual part of, you know, it's a function of the human brain. It exists in the brain of people and many other animals. Whether we know it's there or not, whether we pay attention to it or not, it's there, it's operating. And it evolved over millions of years and is a phenomenally strong mechanism because it is in control of having mating and having children, which is what evolution is all about, right? It's an incredibly powerful mechanism. Um, and you can tap into that existing mechanism if you want to, or you can ignore it, but you know, it's not going away. And companies, like I think Apple kind of stumbled into it. I'm not, they do everything just about right. Maybe they figured it out. Maybe they just got a little lucky making some choices, but you know, companies that really stumble into it can do extremely well. Um, and so one of the things that I talk about in my book is I just lay out, you know, what are all the different parts? What do you need to do? Because it's not simple. Um, if it was simple, everyone would do it. Uh, but it's possible. But it's possible. And you need a little bit of a roadmap. And that's, that's what I try and uh, provide in the, the book, The Things We Love. I want to circle back to something you were just talking about with Apple. Tell me which of these things you think is in what priority of order to build love and this uh -huh. brand affinity and advocacy. Is it authenticity? Mm -hmm. Is it differentiation? Mm -hmm. Is it a cost value proposition? Mm -hmm. Is it recommendations from other people? Is it things I'm not even thinking about? What is it that really serves as the foundation for the developing of that love? All right. So that's a great question. And everything you had on that list has a role. I mean, they've all got a part. But if you want to start, I'll start with the foundation, which is a little bit boring, but important. And I, I, and I don't mean it's the only important part. I do think it's the first part. So people, when they say, I love such and such, some of the time they absolutely mean it. Right. When they say, I love my country, they mean they love their country. And that's a sincere love for their country. But when they say, I love your hat, uh, maybe they don't really love your hat. And, and when you find out what is it, what is it really, what are they saying when they say, I love your hat? What they're just saying is, that's a really good hat. That's an excellent hat. And so if we have a situation where people use the word love, as a synonym for excellent. What that tells us, if we play detective, is that being excellent is a very important part of brand love. So every time I ask someone, tell me about a product or a brand you love, and then start describing it, the first thing they will do is explain why it is excellent, all the excellent things about it. So I've got to say that the foundation, the first step in brand love is having a, you know, an excellent product. It's really hard to get people to love uh, a mediocre product. However, 
the interesting part really comes next because you can think something is excellent without loving it. I think that Mercedes makes excellent cars, but I have absolutely no love for Mercedes. I don't hate them or love them. I couldn't care less about them. Um, so the question becomes, all right, we've worked on that. Our engineers are good. Our designers are good. We've got a, you know, a product that, that consumers, once they try it, they do think it's excellent. How do we make that emotional connection? How do we make it to the next step? Because I'll tell you, the, you know, go back to the smartphones. Okay, Apple, I'm an Apple person. I own an iPhone. Please, iPhone people, don't berate me with hate mail when I say this. But technically, Apple iPhones are not better than Android phones. What? People who are, people who are really into the technology tell me that a lot of these Android phones at a purely technological level are as good or better than the Apple phones. Aaron, I don't believe it. There's no I way. I know, Jackie, I know you won't believe it because that's, that's part telling. of what it means to love something is that you that you resist negative information. And, and from a marketing perspective, that's what we want, right? We want our consumers to say, I don't believe that. Um, but but that's actually true. And I, I'm an Apple phone guy too, because for various reasons, but, but that's all I'm told. So product excellence though is not by itself uh, enough. And then we get into what, what takes it the rest of the way. And so one of the things that is very important from the research is what I call intrinsic enjoyment. So that just means user experience, basically. So with people, we say, oh, that new person, you know, does she love him or is she just using him? And we've all heard that expression. What does that mean? Like if, if you have, if when you're with somebody, you really enjoy the time you spend with them and you just really, so time seems to fly. You'll say, I love that person. But if you spend time with someone and you don't enjoy it and it drags on and you're not having a good time, but you keep seeing them because they're going to help you on the job or they're going to give you money or something like this, right? Then yeah, you don't love them. You're just using them. And that's the same with products. If you enjoy the process of using a product and you may think you may come to love that product. But if you find using a product to be unpleasant or frustrating, even if the outcome, even if the results are things that you value a lot, you won't love that product. So one of the next steps is to pay attention to user experience and make sure that people have this sort of good, positive experience when they're actually interacting with your company, if it's a service, with your reps, right, that they're having a good emotional experience throughout that. And then we get to the next step. And the next step, um, I can take a little slow or we can talk as we go through it. Otherwise, this will become a very long lecture, but it's got three subparts. And these are what I call relationship warmers. These are things that take a cold sort of practical relationship and warm it up and make it more like love. And the way that you do this is that your brain evolved really to only love people. Your brain evolved to love your family, your friends among humans, and your spouse did not evolve to love trees or rocks or smartphones or any other stuff that was around you. Uh, when we love a brand or a product, our brain thinks it's a person at some level. 
um, if our brain didn't think it was a person, we wouldn't be able to love it, really. So there's three ways that your brain comes to think things are kind of people. Not that your brain doesn't 100%, you know, it understands it's not a person, but at some level it thinks it's a person. So the first way that your brand, excuse me, that your brain thinks something is a person is if it's anthropomorphic, it actually looks like a person. Right? So you see this with cars, they design the front of the car to look like a face, right? So that uh, people will, will sort of respond that way. And the human brain is just a sucker for this stuff. It does not have to look very much like a person for your brain to start queuing in and thinking it's a person. People respond very differently to products that have this sort of human quality to them. Is that why we tie in mascots? Is that for the same reason? Why, I'm is, sorry? To give the, is that why we tie in mascots for the same reason is to give them a human element? Yeah. So like a product, you're saying like a product will have like a mask. Absolutely. Right. And those mascots work really well, like the talking little salamander or what have you. I think he's a gecko. He's the Geico gecko. He's the Geico. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. So, so the mascots do that. And also, I mean, you can have like, I, I gave the example of a car that sort of looks like a human face. You could also do that with a celebrity spokesperson for the brand. Right now you're connecting the brand to a person. And that, and that gets us to the next part, which is when the product or the brand connects to a human being. So uh, this happens all the time. Like a real super easy example is, you know, if somebody gives you a gift, that gift connects you to the person who gave it to you, right? And so in the book, I talk about that as being person, thing, person. So there's you, the person, the gift that you have a relationship with, and then the other person is the person who, who gave it to you. And tremendously often I find that when people talk about things that they love, it starts off that, they, that they're talking about their relationship with the object, and very quickly it becomes how the object connects them to somebody else. So sometimes that's practical, like with phones. Like I call people, I text people, connects me to my friends. Right? In fact, I've even found in my research that people who have, the more friends you have, the more people love their phone because it's doing more connecting for them. Right? Um, sometimes though it's symbolic. It'll be, oh, I've got this University of Michigan sweatshirt and it connects me to all the people I went to school with when I was there. So it'll be sort of a symbolic uh, connection. So the second one is, the first is the product sort of looks like a person. The second is the product connects you to a person. And so you come to think of it as being sort of part of that person. And the third way, which is really the most powerful, and the most common, is that the product becomes a part of your own identity. So in the same way that you can love yourself, once the product is part of your sense of identity, then you can love the product too. And there's a much more to be said on that, but I'll let you guys get a word in edgewise here. <laughs> no, but it's fascinating. You know, we deal in this... Um, B2B space primarily. We have a few B2C clients. And so all the things you're saying are the things that we have kind of innately learned to work with. But now you're giving us the foundational reason why those things work. Right. Right. Michael's going to tell something insightful as soon as he unmutes. Damn it. All right. There you are. Amateur move. No, I'm just saying that, you know, you're dealing with a bunch of brand geeks over here. Like Jackie is more than I am, has read probably every book known to mankind on this stuff. And um, 
and we love talking talking this. I mean, it, it's something that we when we sit around talking about things, it's usually this that we kind of jive on, you know. Um, so no, it's like hearing you say certain things and and are you what are you doing over there? I was just gonna show him my bookcase behind oh. me. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> But uh, no, I, I love talking shop when it comes to this stuff and hearing other people's viewpoints, especially people that get it and, and that are writing the book on it like you are and and really kind of um, validating some of the things that we're doing and, and explaining it in a different way that we can help explain to our clients what we're doing. Because that's the biggest challenge, I think it has been for the past 20 years is is um, what's the what's the ROI? Well, you know, what am I getting for this? And um, they start asking those fundamental questions, you know, um, you know beating the door it's my phone ringing and it's like yeah that all it's all going to happen but i can't tell you that up front right away i mean you got to put the put the time in you got to really work mm -hmm. at this this is not an overnight fix this is not something you can just spin the wheel and say i want it better i want a cool logo and that'll make it all better and that's that's part of it maybe but it's not all of it right yeah a cool logo is not going to make it all better yeah and i love a good logo i mean I, I, i'm a designer as well and but yeah, it can't be it. And that's, I, I talked to a lot, of, a lot of universities and students around here. And the first thing I walk into class, I'm like, what do you, what is a brand to you? Define a brand for me. And these are kids studying it, marketing and design. And, and, and that's the number one answer. Well, it's an identity and it's a logo. It's a look. And it's, I'm, I'm like, no, it's not, that's not what we think. I know it's not what you think either. That's, that's a piece of it, but it's definitely not what makes up a brand. I'm curious, what, what is your definition? If somebody asked you in one sentence, what is a brand to you? A brand to me is, you know, at a, at a legal level, obviously it's a, a word or something that identifies a particular company or group of products. But then the, the part that's interesting about it are all the mental associations that people have with that word or with that brand. So if you think about, you know, someone says peanut butter, you think jelly, right? So if someone, you know, I often do this in my research, I'll say, okay, uh, let's say, you know, Hewlett Packard, what are the first three words that come to your mind? When I say Hewlett Packard, you say what, right? And so you want to get at what are just the immediate mental connections that people have, because that's what generates their emotion and judgment about the brand in a sort of initial superficial way. So when they, when they hear, you know, Pepsi or they see Pepsi, their brain is automatically activating their idea of Pepsi. And then from that, it's also activating other things that it has closely associated with Pepsi. And when you get those close associations, what those are, youthfulness, whatever it might be, um, excitement, those are that that becomes for that consumer what the brand really is. Who was it, Jackie? Well, somebody we borrowed from everything that we have. I, I very, very little is, is original as much as we borrowed from here and there to find the things that work for us, you know? Mm -hmm. But it was uh, Marty Neumeyer. Is that, am I getting that right, Jackie? He wrote Brand Gap? Yes. I don't know if you read that book, but I, I love it. It's one of my favorites because he's really simple and clean. But he says a brand is an, um, basically a gut reaction. That's the way he describes it. It's an emotional it. connection between a person and a product, company, or service. Yeah. And it's... And it's, I would amplify that a little bit, maybe expand on it a little bit, because it's not just my connection to that brand. It's, I think about me, I think about that brand, and then what else does that brand remind me of? Mm -hmm. 
So is it the celebrity spokesperson that the brand reminds me of? Or maybe it's a brand that I think of as like, well, they use sweatshop labor. Maybe sweatshop labor is what it reminds me of. Mm -hmm. right? um, so whatever those strong connections are that I think of when I think of the brand, that's, you know, that's what the brand is to me. Yeah, that, that look on Jackie's face right now is, is who took my book and where is it? Who did I lend it to and why can't I find it? I was just looking on my bookshelf and it's not there. And now I'm going to go search everyone's office because someone has my book. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm very well aware But I think the point that Mr. Newmeyer makes yeah. and makes it so eloquently is it's not a logical connection. It's not these rational reasons. It's emotional. And right. so when we think about that, that's the first half of the sentence to me. The second half of the sentence is it's the person's emotional connection. So the business can't tell you what to think. The product can't tell you how to feel. It's how I feel. And so when we give the power, I think this is a little Brene Brown, but when we give the power to the person and we accept that they decide what our brand is, all of a sudden we can do a better job of earning that love from them. If, if you look at old advertising, when it was a monologue and we just used traditional advertising to tell people what to think four out of five doctors agree that our brand of cigarettes is better. Mm -hmm. Right. I think we ruined a lot with that campaign. Um, then we, I see these big businesses who say, well, I'm going to tell them what to think of us. I'm like you can tell them whatever you want, but they're not going to listen. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. I mean, that's become even more obvious. I think that was always true, but now with the big emphasis on social media, uh, you know, especially for consumer brands, you, if you are the owner of that brand, you are one voice among many voices talking about that brand. You've got the influencers and all the other people who want to be influencers and all of their friends. And, you know, if you want people talking about your brand, that's very important. Um, but you can never really control completely what they're going to say. So it becomes, you know, it's a lot like dating, the analogy there. When I was young, I was very, very bad at dating, uh, very bad at dating. And I was bad at dating because I was an extremely rational person. I was very interested in logic. I actually started taking philosophy courses at the University of Michigan when I was in high school, I was 16 years old, and I, I started taking the university uh, philosophy program because um, logic really worked for me. And so I thought on my dates that logic was going to help me somehow. And I thought that women wanted a man with fine qualities. So if I simply expressed those qualities, that everything would work uh, well. And uh, you're laughing. I see Jackie laughing. Yes, you are right to laugh. This was This was not the way... Um, instead of seeing me as rational, they saw me as an arrogant jerk, right? Uh, so it did not work very well. I, and I, I learned certainly to avoid that to a certain extent, you know, after not too long, but I still had some of those habits. And when I met my wife, we had the most unbelievable first date. Um, at the end of that date, I went back to my roommate and I told my roommate that I was going to marry her. And she went back to um, her hotel room. She was actually visiting from out of town and staying at a hotel and wrote in her journal that she was going to marry me. 
So we both knew after, after one date. And what was the big difference between that date and many others? I thought at the beginning of that date that I was never going to see her again. And the only reason I was going out with her is because she was in from out of town and she was probably bored and she seemed like a nice person and I didn't have anything to do. And so why not just go out and have a good time? So I had no thoughts about the future on that date because I didn't, I think she was, she lived out of town and I was never going to see her. Um, and because I was carefree in that way, um, instead of trying to rationally convince this person to like me, I just, you know, let loose, relaxed, and it worked much, much better. Um, now, as advertisers, as marketers, I'm not telling people, just relax and be yourself, right? That's a little more of a dating advice. You can't, that's not exactly right. But there is, even in marketing, um, a need to think that you can't just rationally argue people into submission. I guess where the authenticity comes from, you know, I mean, are, are you genuine? Are you, do you know, and I think it's just as important we talk about knowing who the audience is. Do you know who you are? You know, do you know who you are? And have you looked in the mirror and said, this is who we think we are, but what does the world think of us, you know? And, and, and what are the perceptions that are, that exist out there? And if you can't address those things, how do you, how do you go on that date? How do you form those relationships if yeah. you're still trying to figure out what you are? Yeah. And authenticity is difficult, especially for organizations, because organizations are a lot of different people. And so how do you create something that feels authentic? And then there's the problem. You can express a certain view in your advertising, but if your employees don't buy into that, it's hard to recruit and retain the people that you need uh, at the company. Uh, a lot of people don't like to feel they're at a hypocritical company. Uh, I had a, a, a meeting with a guy from CVS some time ago. Uh, he came and I saw a presentation and it was fascinating. This is not, this is CVS, the uh, pharmacy. And he was talking about how they were trying to change the company culture and change their image both externally in the market but also internally for their employees from being just sort of a retailer to being a healthcare provider and so they gave up selling alcohol it cost them billions of dollars right and i thought that's interesting um but what really came next was fascinating is the people who worked in the pharmacy area said you know we're selling all of these dietary supplements for exercise and for other things. And honestly, it's snake oil half the time and, and we don't actually know what's in them. They say they've got these certain ingredients, but when they get tested in laboratories, those aren't the actual ingredients a lot of time in those products. Um, we don't wanna sell these anymore. And they took them off the shelves. They got, they, they got rid of all of the dietary supplements um, that they couldn't verify what was really in them and that they did what they, they said they were going to do. I was impressed with that uh, because getting rid of alcohol is a very, that was a big thing. That cost them a lot of money. But people would notice that and they would sort of get credit for that. Getting rid of the witch doctory dietary supplement stuff, nobody's going to give them credit for that. 
but they did it because they wanted to be authentic to their employees within the company culture. Do you think that they're going to get rid of soda and ice cream and candy? I mean, where's the line, you know, because some things in moderation are okay, not tobacco perhaps, uh, but other things. So, you know, I think you've got to walk the walk and talk the talk. So I appreciate that if they're going to be a healthcare place, they have to act like it. What, where's their line? That's a really good question. And, and you're totally right. Um, and, and that gets into a, a, a real difficulty because it, our culture, we don't have a good answer for that. We tend to be very individualistic. The overall approach tends to be, you know, let the consumer decide, which I generally agree with that we should let the consumer decide. But you're right about the, the soda and the candy. And there's lots of situations, for example, with fruit juice, where the popular belief is that fruit juice is very healthy for you. But if you talk to you know, actual nutritionists who study this, they'll say fruit is really healthy for you, but fruit juice is a bunch of sugar water, not very different from soda. And no, you should not be drinking fruit juice. You should be eating actual pieces of fruit and drinking water. Uh, so how, how far do you go in saving consumers from themselves and from their own mistakes? It's, it's a real complicated question. I don't know, but I need you to stop complimenting Jackie because it's the third time you said that's a really good question. And, <laughs> and, and I'm going to hear about it for weeks now. Do you remember when Aaron, the expert on brand love, told me that I was asking you questions? That's a really good comment. <laughs> oh, don't even. Don't even. I appreciate that. I'll put it in my bank. Oh, no, no, no. I was enjoying it so much. I love the fact that he acted as if I was going to go on and on and on for weeks about it because it was really going to be more like months, Aaron. Months <laughs> I was going to live on this. Anytime there's an argument, she goes, oh, by the way, Aaron thought I was insightful and had right. questions. Right. Yes. You were going to become the tiebreaker at the agency for years to come. Excellent. You can call me. I'll give you my cell phone number. Yes. And you can, you can call me up and... Um, it won't take that much time. I'll just say Jackie's right. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite guest ever right there. Oh, Aaron, it has been a pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time to share your wisdom and knowledge, not just with us, but with our seven listeners. Uh, this has been just fantastic. Well, Jackie, thank you so much. Michael, thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed the opportunity. You guys are really fun to talk to. Um, anytime you want to chat, you give me a call back. Uh, I love to talk about this stuff. Oh, awesome. Don't tempt us. We're going to book you. You'll be our first repeat guest. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. All right. Bye. 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 All right. I'm in the recording, but we can, can chat for a second. In. All right. Great. <laughs> <Right. laughs>